Thank you for joining us on this episode of Turf Dudes. My name is Jeff Atkinson. We are reaching out to industry leaders and game changers to discuss what they are seeing out there, new discoveries, and the science behind today's turf management strategies. This podcast was created for you, the Turfgrass Manager, with a curiosity into the science behind turfgrass management. If you have a topic suggestion, know of innovative work we should feature, or simply have a question you would like for us to address, please reach out to us at turfdudes at heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. On today's episode, we interview Dr. Bill Kreuzer, Extension Turfgrass Specialist at University of Nebraska. Dr. Kreuzer's research focuses on soil, water, and nutrient management. His extension program aims to increase the precision of turfgrass management using new technologies and environmental models. Enjoy the show. Bill, thanks for joining us and appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about, about yourself, about your background, um, kind of the turf program, what you have going on at University of Nebraska. Yeah, so uh, I, I've been in the turf industry since uh, I was a high schooler, put a backyard putting green in and, uh, you know, try to figure out how to make a backyard putting green grow and got kind of nerded <laughs> out on reading about it and how to do it. And then uh, went to Wisconsin, started doing research there as a, as a um, bachelor student after I interned at Whistling Straits and uh, for a couple of years. Got into research and started, you know, building PGR models uh, mainly because um, I had a backyard putting green that I wanted to put Primo down on, and I was not unsure how to do it. And uh, so I did that for my master's degree with Doug Soldat. Went to Cornell for my PhD with Frank Rossi. Uh, you know, we had a good time out there, kind of studying Civitas physiology. And now I'm uh, at Nebraska. Um, you know, continuing to do a lot of the turf ecology work I started. Uh, with Doug, looking at how fertilizers and PGRs and water impact growth rates and things like that. So uh, it's been a lot. It's been a lot of fun. You know, time's flying. Six years in. So how is this? Is a, I guess the third podcast I think that we've recorded since the whole COVID pandemic began. How has that influenced or impacted your research efforts or um, program or? Yeah, a little bit. You know, we do have some support uh, from some different companies. Uh, you know, we've gotten USGA funds in the past to fund some of our projects. We have a GCSAA funded project. I think the biggest thing was the unknown. I mean, the year started uh, right. It was kind of like shut down right as the growing season was starting. Um, I was unable to really get an idea of like what my trial work was going to look like, how many undergrads I was going to need. So I ended up just not even hiring undergrads because I didn't know what it was going to be like. And so right. I just didn't hire. So, um, you know, it's the kind of the freeing thing about it is I've been able to kind of do some experiments that are kind of, you know, something different because I don't have as much trial stuff to do. And uh, right. so I got some pretty cool studies going on right now with just me and our full time farm managers, uh, Matt and Craig, and then my research tech, uh, uh, Michael, and I have a postdoc I share with Rock Aswa, uh, Luchi Lee. So, that kind of little team there has been been able to kind of keep things going. So, yeah, it seems like some folks the uncertainty of it all seems like that was probably the biggest factor in research. I know we had a few trials we were trying to get out at the beginning of the season. It's like, well, maybe we can do it, maybe we can't do it. University might allow it, might not allow it. It's just so, are you planning? Is Nebraska planning on going back to school? Students yeah, I campus. mean, we're planning to go back to school, you know, like the first week is uh, off campus, uh, virtual only. And then uh, then it's more of a condensed schedule. Um, 
fortunately, I just teach uh, my, my capstone class this year, which is nice. Uh, so um, it's not a lot of in class. Uh, we work, our students take care of our par three golf course in Lincoln. And uh, so I just get the students out there. It's pretty nice because they get paid because they actually work at the golf course and it's part of their capstone. And then I just give them mm -hmm. like projects, challenges. And they just got to figure out how to do it and then implement them. And then we do reflections on like what they would have done differently. And that's a real nice way to like yeah. combine everything that they've learned in turf school. And it also makes them like it builds their confidence. That, like I can do this. I'm ready to graduate and be successful turf manager. So, you know, a lot of that isn't formal class for me. So it's a little bit easier. But some people have to teach labs and stuff. I know, you know yeah. they really have to be a little more careful in, in all the protocols and everything that they're doing. That's awesome because that also gives them some opportunities for critical thinking, problem solving, yeah, results. Exactly. And it's been great. I mean, we, we grassed the fairways a couple of years ago with our first student to bank grass. And, you know, out there this morning, we were doing variable rate uh, nitrogen fertilizer on real golf course fairways uh, uh, for the first time in our program. And we've got, you know, sensors on the mowers that are building maps to figure out what needs more or less fertilizer. And then we're we're actually out there doing variable rate. And so I got some nice drone footage today. They can see the different sprayer output, like ramp up, ramp down as it's moving across the fairway wow. to hit those different prescriptions. Yeah, it's crazy how we started to been hearing about that for in ag for so long. And now the, I guess the trickle down technology and applications into turf. Yeah, and I think the, the problem there still is like software. That's where the problem is. I mean, we're getting the, the sprayers are coming now. I mean, you, the the big companies are making some GPS single nozzle control, but then we have these companies like Frost that worked with us and they got us the variable rate ability on top of that. And then I have a company here in Lincoln, Holland Scientific, they build crop sensors in egg. We're putting those things on the back of mowers. Every time we mow, we're making Jeez. nitrogen status maps and then we can build our prescriptions from there. So it's been pretty, pretty fun. And now the hard part is, getting that data to build a map to then put it back to the spray right so like now we're getting hung up on the software side yeah so are they making the nitrogen recommendations or nitrogen maps is that based off of ndvi or some sort of a green index or what what's it's a standard? it's a it's a little bit better one ndvi um has got a problem it saturates on 100 percent canopy which hopefully surf managers we have right right so ndvi can be problematic from that perspective um, so we mainly been using NDRE, which is a red edge, uh, which is much more highly correlated to chlorophyll content, which we know is highly correlated to fertility status, nitrogen right. fertility status. So uh, we can we still use both because if you have a reduction in, in NDVI, that might be an indication of canopy thinning, like a disease, insect, traffic, where NDRE is more specific to just that. Um, that side and then we're also looking at like a water band index too that we can also put on there so uh the manufacturer of those sensors is trying to build a sensor for us that's all self-contained it's got gps unit data logger water band ndre ndvi so we could generate all three of those and then kind of parse out is it drought is it nitrogen is it thinning because of something else and so we're not wow. fertilizing a plot with pythium or a plot that's just dry right so that's kind of the goal yeah, it's crazy to think about in this time of year where you have so many different stresses, even on the same fairway, to be able to mitigate those stresses with a single pass, potentially, of a sprayer. That's pretty cool. 
Yeah, and this is uh, there's some challenges there. We got a lot of bent grass, and that's why we one of the reasons we regrass those fairways is for that reason. Uh, but you still got a lot of POA in there, and if you get a POA heavy area, you're going to get just a really different signal off that sensor. And so we have to like account for that kind of stuff, and um, right, just constantly trying to figure that out. And that's research. So that's what my PhD student Michael has been working on, uh, and and uh, hopefully he's got several years of that, and uh, we can really start figuring out how do we make those maps. That's the real challenge right now: is making the maps and putting them in the sprayer. Jeez, yeah, that's a tremendous amount of tremendous amount of work. But I guess that kind of transitions into one point about the growing degree day models, something that you've become well-known for um, is just the amount of work and the amount of data points that go into creating growing degree day models, specifically in terms of just clipping yields and harvesting those clipping yields. But can you give us a little background on what growing degree day models are, um, how sure. they're applied in the field? Yeah. So, I mean, the big thing, the aha moment for me, I still remember it. I was sitting in my dorm sophomore year uh, and I was reading a GCM article from uh, Beasley and Brandon, you know, Bruce and, and Jeff are doing yep. stuff at, uh, at Illinois, uh, and they were showing temperature was impacting how long Primo and Paclobutrazol are, are, like, lasting inside the plant. So, uh, I just, to me, I just went through intro agronomy at Wisconsin, learned about growing degree days in which you just kind of look at temperature accumulation, and if it's cold outside, you accumulate temperature really quick, and your, your number gets bigger faster, and then if it's, or if it's warm, Outside, if it's cold outside, then you accumulate temperature slowly, and uh, right. and you could use that. So if it's really hot, and we know that the PGRs are breaking down faster in the plant, well, then we should be able to use these these growing degree day models to predict when to reapply. So uh, it was kind of a departure a little bit from in the past, where if it's a for proxy for seed heads, you just start a model on a calendar day. Maybe it's February fifteenth or first, and you start accumulating. Where ours is a lot simpler because you just start the model the day you apply PGR and then you just wait for it to hit a certain threshold and then you know the PGR is gone and you just mm -hmm. go reapply. So it's really basic and simple. It's just making those models is just super labor intensive. You know, we did 250 clippings last uh, or last Friday alone and then you did we did 80 yesterday and you just you do thousands of um, thousands a season and then you just all you're trying to really understand is. How does these these PGRs? How do they impact clipping yield over time? Right. And in order to do that, you got to do clippings all the time from hundreds of plots. Jeez! And so you are now. That original paper was published in 2011. So now nine years in after that paper's been published, how would you say that that model is holding up to implementation in the field? It's holding up great. I mean, the anecdotal that we get is is um, you know, is always nice to see and hear about. Uh, but even as we have other professors in other states trying it or implementing it with their research and seeing really consistent growth suppression, then you know they're they're liking it. Uh, and so uh, it seems to be working. You know, we've tested it from New York uh, all the way into Wisconsin, Minnesota, Arkansas, Nebraska, Texas. And then a couple of years ago, all our friends in the southeast said, well, let's do this for ultra dwarfs. And mm -hmm. so they've been doing it now on uh, on the ultra dwarf greens and two different experiments are finding similar numbers. So I know like Scott McElroy was doing some stuff and and uh, he's getting really close on theirs. It looks really good um, to getting published. And uh, and then I'm looking at, you know, stuff from Jim Kearns and um, 
Eric Razor and every all these guys across the South, um, Jim McCurdy, Jim Brosnan, they were doing it all for us, and they were finding you know that these models are holding up. They're different values, but they're working on these different grass species, and and so it really is right. holding up. And now we're even moving over to DMI fungicides because a DMI fungicide is essentially a Class B PGR. It's like your trimmer or your right. cutlass. So if it works for trimming and cutlets, there's no reason it shouldn't work for DMIs. And we're finding, in fact, it works great for DMIs, too. So what type of, when you say works for DMIs, are you saying, uh, suggesting that the growth regulation effect? Yes, it's or, very specific. Okay. It's growth regulation. It's not the, the impact on the, on the, the pathogen, right? It's right. how is it impacting the growth rate? And, and we're looking at, you know, the different DMIs, the older chemistries, the newer chemistries, which ones are giving us more suppression, which ones are giving us more of that stereotypical blue-green coloration. You know, yep. we're seeing a lot of that right now. We're doing that on bentgrass greens, bentgrass fairways, and bluegrass fairways. And so, again, that's 250 samples every couple of days just to get all those areas sampled. Because there's so many DMIs. The there's eight DMIs. Yeah. And then you got to do the are low rate and the high rate. Is there a difference between the DMIs, like a Max Tima and a Tebiconazole? Yeah, there is. Um, you know, I'm not quite there yet. So the thing about this research that stinks is you have to collect all the data, and then in November you run the models. Because if you keep running the models, it, it's oh, difficult. Geez. So I see sure. there, and you can see differences in color, and usually that is a good indication of how much suppression you're getting. Um, but until I really have, you know, solid whole summer of data and i actually run it i really don't know what's going on so you just kind of yeah. cross your fingers and hope that everything is working <laughs> right and then you in november you feel good like oh that, that worked so it's worth all those hours yeah geez man that's a uh, that's a lot of work without knowing exactly what you're what you're going to get out of it yeah as, as far as the gdd models go a question that i've received a couple of times from from our reps and from a couple of our, our customers as well within the last couple of weeks are pgr applications in summer and i guess one school of thought is some guys like to quit making pgr applications some like to continue making applications during summer stresses do you fall on one side of the fence of, of that argument yeah i keep making them all uh, there's it, there's a little more nuance to it than uh than just stress no stress um you know especially the class a pgrs the primos the news um and, and even Cutlass, is, Cutlass doesn't give you a lot of suppression compared to like Paclo. So those three, Primo, Cutlass, and New, they don't, I don't see as much problems. Uh, the trim, and if you start going higher rates, especially if you start mixing or if you're mixing Cutlass with other products, that's when you can start to get into uh, a little bit too much suppression. And that can be, you know, a little problematic. But the thing that I try to insist to people think about is not the PGR and the rate. It's more about, how much suppression do you need? So how much growth do you have? So if you have really low growth rates in the summer, then you might need lesser application rates. You know, I use the brake pedal analogy. You just got to push it a little bit lighter. So that's a lower application rate. And then when you get big surges, then you got to push it really hard. And to me, in a lot of the, like the Midwest, the Northeast, uh, anywhere that you're getting these big growth surges in the summer because of mineralization and breakdown of organic matter by microbes, we actually get a lot of growth, right? We talk about puffy greens all the time. And so I'm hitting them really hard right now with PGRs to try to keep them in check so they're not growing like crazy and getting puffy on me. 
So you've got mineralization of nitrogen. You also have primo applications or other growth regulator applications. I mean, how do those factors, how do they all play into what rate of nitrogen we should be applying during the summer months with either foliar or granular applications? Yeah. I, so I just look at that um, and I really let quality and my clipping yield be my guide there. Um, you know, at our Jim Egger golf course, we do clipping yields. Uh, if they're high, we don't put anything in the tank. Um, we just know we're getting it from the soil and we don't need any more. If they start dropping off, then we'll start ramping up our rates. And so that's one of the things that really is my bigger driver. But this, the study that I'm started this year at, at East Campus, our research plots, we got bent grass mowed at 80 or 120. I got Primo at the full rate, which is five and a half ounces. I got Primo at a six X rate, 33 ounces. And I got full rate of Primo and a full rate of trim it, which is the 16 ounce break rate of trim it. Mm-hmm. And then I have it at either 1500s or a third of a pound every two weeks. And the third of the pound by far looks the best. It has extreme density, especially the trim it Primo with the high fertilizer. Cause now you're pushing the brake and the gas pedal the same time. Same time. That density just goes crazy. And we're getting great green speeds out of it. And that, you know, our double in fertilizer rate, my green speed is less by about three inches. So I'm not really worried not about much. it. You know, right. and the quality is so much better. Your density is better. And those plots, you know, are still with trim it. We were stimping them. They're stimping 13, 13, 6. Because they're mowed at wow. 80 and they're, we got the trim it primo on there. And even with three tenths of a pound every two weeks, people think that's crazy. But you remember, that's a three-year-old putting green. It needs a little bit more end than a 80-year-old green would be that has that organic matter to break down and supply it. Yeah, so what are you seeing as far as clipping production in a green mode at 0.08 versus a green mode at 120? Is yeah, there, is there any difference, difference between the two? Huge difference. And the one that's grown at mowing at 80 is growing two to four times faster. Wow. So it's really so, counterintuitive. You would think, hey, the grass is growing uh, shorter, there's less leaves, there's less sugar being made, and it's growing two to four times faster. So it really shows this disconnect in how grasses make leaves. They um, push leaves to try to maximize and maintain leaf area or to try to get more sun. So if you're in the shade, again, it's making less sugar, but boom, and it's growing like crazy to outgrow a tree. Or you're mowing at 80. It is so stressed out. It's putting all this energy in. It also means it needs more fertilizer to look good because you're taking the fertilizer off two to four times faster than you are on the grass mode at 120. So, you know, the clipping yields are always higher. The fertility rates are higher. It's a lot. It's a pretty dynamic type process. Are you noticing any other stresses at that low mowing height? I mean, any kind of root observations? That may not be a part of the study, so it may be tough to answer. No, no, I was, I was pulling some cores a couple days ago on roots just to kind of get like a rough feel for them and they, to see how they looked and they look healthy. You know, we've had, we've been warm, you know, average highs been in the low 90s, average lows in the, you know, around 70. So it's it's typical Nebraska summer, humidity's coming up and the roots still look healthy. I mean, it's it's V8 bank grass, so that grass yeah. just is, is real strong. I mean, all the new bank grasses are just really strong. But, you know, we're taking that same mindset over to that Jim Egger golf course. We're mowing greens there at 83. We're fertilizing them, and uh, they're pencross. And it's just wow. top dressing and, you know, keeping the fertility levels up. If, and so our greens are rolling great every day. They're short. I'm happy with them. 
Uh, it's just about yeah. cultivation, top dressing, you know, gilopithium root rot. We put some segue or something down to help check that up, and uh, they look great. Just kind of take care of the whole agronomic picture, and everything will generally be in pretty good shape. Yeah, and you start getting like. low on end. What do I see? I got moss all over on those low end treatments, and yeah. they don't look as good. I mean, it's just if it looks hungry, then just feed it. Healthy grass is going to promote more consistent playing conditions than grass that's like constantly lean and not that uniform. And so, so let me go back to a question you, you mentioned that at, at the course you guys are measuring uh, clipping yield. And there's a lot yep. of conversation you see on Twitter that I guess a hashtag clip vol pops up quite frequently for someone who is not doing that today and has curiosity. What's the most efficient way of going about measuring clipping yield on a golf course? Yeah, setting? we do it. We do it real simple. We just, uh, we go out to the last green we mow every day, which is five right by the shop. And, uh, we take the, the middle bucket after we, uh, we empty before five, we go mow, take the middle bucket, put it into one of those like one gallon pesticide mixing jugs that are clear. Yep. And we just eyeball it. Like how many quarts is it? Is it 1.4 quarts, 1.8 quarts? And then uh, I, we put it into our Greenkeeper app and it tracks it right there, which is nice for me because then I can just log in and then <laughs> see what's going on at the golf course wherever I am in the world. And like I would be able to know what's going on at, at the course. And so you're talking about just a fresh volume. There's no processing of the samples. Dump it in the container. Yeah, exactly. And it's not going to be like super accurate like when we do it for clippings. When we do clippings on putting greens, you know, you, you walk five feet, you stop, you dress, you brush them in and you dry them and then you got to remove every stupid piece of sand out it stinks right it's just miserable yeah. right it's a pain but if you're doing it for this as long as your method is about the same like you use the same bucket and use the same mower uh set up and just you know same center bucket and you just do it the same every day then you start getting to know like what is normal for you so when we first started doing this we were mowing at 120 and i said you know i think our goal here should be around 1.2 to 1.4 quarts would be a good goal. Well, we dropped our mowing heights to 83, and now what's happening? Clipping yields spiking, and so we're always at like 1.8, even with PGRs and no fertilizer. And uh, so we're like realizing we have to reset that goal because we're mowing so much shorter than we have the last couple of years. And I guess that's kind of a good point that the whole consistency of it, you can't just take a clipping yield one day and make too many conclusions about it. It's got to be something that you commit no, to and do over, over time. Yeah, we look at seven-day averages. Uh, and so if you think about it, if you're out spraying your greens every two to three weeks, probably every two weeks, you know, and you got maybe 12, 14 days of clipping volume, look at the average, or more importantly, like make a little plot and look at is it going up or down in that last 14 days? If it's going up and I'm already above my goal, I might say skip the fertilizer this week. If I'm just flat above my goal, I still might say skip. Or if I'm starting to see a trend down, then I get more aggressive with my my, my foliar ferts. So that's why I like foliar fertilizers because you know, Mother Nature is changing the amount of nitrogen that the plant is seeing all the time. As the conditions are changing and the microbes are either mm -hmm. fixing or immobilizing nitrogen or they're, they're uh, releasing it or mineralizing nitrogen. Uh, and so I want to use like soluble sources just for that reason on this highly maintained areas like putting greens that you're, you're going to spray every two weeks anyways. And, you know, some of the more extended release products and, you know, those are great in other areas. But if you're doing clippings, I like to have that control. Yeah. And it's amazing just over the last several years, how much, how many more decisions are data driven 
than maybe what they were a decade ago. Um, I don't know if it's our ability to collect data or our ability to analyze data with programs like your Greenkeeper app um, that you develop with uh, with Doug. Yeah, exactly. And it's just one of those things. I mean, we have really big goals for Greenkeeper app. I mean, with like soil testing built in and clipping volume, and then we know how they're fertilizing. You know, some of the goals we're thinking about is like, how do we build custom models at your course? So we know your golf course responds this way to this kind of fertilizer, and this is how your soil test will respond, and organic matter will change by this much. And uh, so the more data you can feed into it, the more it's going to be able to give you guidance about how you should be managing to, like, keep things where you want them to be. So so let's talk a little bit about soil testing. I, I think that's a – everybody's got an opinion, right? Everybody's got yep. a different way of looking at things, but um, – a lot of the work that you do as far as nutrient inputs and um, the soil testing that's associated with that, what are your general guidelines for a superintendent that's asking you, hey, man, I don't know anything about soil testing. Where do I start? What's, uh, it's the same, what's kind of your it's general? It's the same thing as those clipping volumes. It's all about consistency. And that's how it is. For, right. If you're trying to use data in any way, I don't care if you're doing soil moisture probes, if you're doing clipping volume, you're doing soil testing. Those are all ways of collecting data. And so you got to be consistent. It's like you'd use the same soil moisture probe time length, you know, across if you had a bunch of probes, you got to be consistent in how deep you're sampling with your soil testing. Uh, and so I like to do it that way. Um, uh, usually I do it in the spring, uh, but if I didn't do it this last spring, I would still do it in the fall. Um, and then the thing that I like to look at is not, and I think this is a departure from maybe about a lot of, consultants or other people we're going to want to do is the number isn't as important as the change, right? Like we don't actually have a lot of great data as to what all those numbers mean. And so when I look at a soil test report, you can, I can go through it pretty quick and look for some certain numbers that we have some science for, but there's other numbers like calcium that there's actually terrible to no science on. Um, but it's really studied a lot and people talk about it a lot. Um, and so to me, even if we don't have good numbers for like what the calcium number means, if you have a number that you're kind of comfortable with at your course, you think it works for you, then I want to see, you know, how is that number changing with time or my phosphorus is it going up or down or potassium? Mm -hmm. You know, those are things that I want to look at or organic matter. Is it going up? Is it flat? Is it going down too rapidly? Because then I'm going to change how I'm fertilizing or cultivating to try to achieve goals. So I, I tell people, you know, don't get too much into like what the number is right now, but more of like, where is it relative to your, your ideal number? And then just try to manage towards it. Cause it seems, I'm sure you've seen the same instance where we have a number that comes back from a soil test that may be deficient based off of any set of guidelines that you want to reference it against, but that person's still producing high quality turf, you know? So there's a, I guess an unknown variable there that we, we can't account for. Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem, too. I get really – that's another problem I have a little bit when it comes to products and testing in general is, like we just talked about, if you have a good agronomic program as a whole, that's what makes good grass, right? It's not one product. It's not one nutrient level. I mean, darn, I got, I got grass that's been phosphorus deficient for six years, like super blue. It's still alive. <laughs> if I put phosphorus on it tomorrow, it's going to look 100 – it's going to look perfect. Right. Like right. push nutrients or even, you know, certain products, too. It's just like it's, it's part of a holistic program. And then don't give all of your good management 
uh, accolades to some product. Like it's because you as a manager decided like this is my program and as a whole mm-hmm. this program is what's allowing me to have these really good conditions and this playability that I want. So uh, I just think like don't over emphasize the soil test numbers. It's kind of just like guidelines for where are you uh, to to kind of uh, manage towards. It's the whole thing. You've got to have the nutrient aspect. You got to have the the pest or the pest control aspect of it, the cultural control aspect of it. All these things kind of go into a holistic plan. Yeah. It's not just one thing or the other. But you, uh, there's a paper interesting that you, you published in 2012, where you were part of the team that published it, talking about nitrogen driven nutrient demand by turf grass. And I was reading through that. I thought it was kind of an interesting concept. I think one of the overriding principles was we don't really know what drives nutrient demand by turf grass, but the premise of, of what I believe, at least what I understood is said that, the nitrogen rate determines how much you need of all the other nutrients that nitrogen being in the, in the driver's seat. Did I interpret that correctly? I mean, what's kind of the takeaways from, yeah, it's kind of right, but I think it's, it's kind of those correlations versus causation things, right? So it's not necessarily nitrogen is the driver. It is growth rate. And since nitrogen is predominantly the most limiting nutrient, unless there's like a phosphorus deficiency or compacted soils, Usually, the more N you put down, the more growth you get. And then the more growth you get, you need more of everything else to sustain that growth, right? You need the right. same, more phosphorus, more potassium, everything nutrient needs to be more of. You need more sugars to sustain that growth. And so the real take home there, and this is where it's like trying to get a, a, a good growth rate is what causes that, that uptake of all those nutrients and the burning and reallocation of sugar. So like an example of non-nitrogen would be shade. You got grass growing in shade, it triggers that phytochrome response, it tries to outgrow those trees, it obviously fails at it. And like how does the how does the grass look? Like right, it grows a lot, grows a lot, grows a lot, thins out is gone. Right? And like it happens immediately. But what's going on here? Well, it's growing, but it's not making sugar. And then, bam, it's out of the system. And so then uh, right. the grass just goes away rapidly. Like, all of a sudden, there's just no grass there in that spot where it's yeah, really shady. Yeah. So, and then the same thing with Primo or any of the PGRs. If you suppress that growth rate with a PGR, you're suppressing the nutrient removal and needs of that plant. So your soil test levels will change slower. Uh, the plant holds on to more nutrients. You have to apply less nutrients because you're removing less in your clippings. So that growth rate aspect is really important. Any factor that's going to influence growth rate is going to influence the need for all the other nutrients. Sounds like you got a storm blowing in. Oh, you're getting some, uh, I can, get a little I can bit pause get a little back wind. inside. I was just trying to avoid oh, no, movies. No, no, you're all good. I heard the thunder a minute ago and then I just heard the wind yeah. in a second. No, you're all good. You're all good. Um, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about as well and, and touch on, there's another paper you published in 2020 about late fall top dressing and covers preventing crown dehydration and winter kill. We're moving into, we're still in the heat of growing season, but you know, winter and fall is right around the, the corner. What are just the general recommendations that you found from top dressing and covers and their effects on uh, winter survival? Yeah, we found that anything that's physical was really the big driver. So covers, sand top dressing, we were able to sustain those crown moistures. Uh, and a lot of the stuff we tried to spray, we weren't really getting a benefit from. I know, you know, Mike Richardson looked at some some Bermuda grass and found that some of the surfactants seemed to help out. Uh, yeah. But uh, we didn't see that. But we have really severe desiccation pressure in Nebraska. 
And so you really need some kind of like a physical presence to, to prevent that. And so what we actually found was is that when the crown moistures of the plant drop below 50%, and for some reference, uh, in the summer, they're about 80% moisture, and then in the winter, they're like 60% moisture, and then when they go below 50% moisture, the risk of dying like spikes. And yeah. so what we found is that those cover treatments uh, and sand top dressing did a really nice job of, of keeping the crown moistures in that 60% range until the plant was ready to break dormancy in the, in the spring. So what kind of threat, as far as covers go, what kind of threshold did you use for saying, hey, this is when we're going to put the covers on, this we're going to take them off, or did you put them on on, on a specific date? And yeah, for ours, it was, they were put on in like early November, and they just stayed on. Okay. Um, and the, the harder part is taking them off on the right time, uh, because like we left them on too long uh, one year, and it was like a clear, it was like a, a non-permeable uh, like a tarp cover, and then we had a lot of heat under there. We took those things off. That grass was like middle of summer green uh and then nebraska yeah. it could be 70 degrees in march and then the next day it could be 20 degrees so that happened it went from the 70s to the you know, upper teens in the matter of uh you know a day Jeez. and so oh. that quality went down real quick and then that's brutal uh, yeah and then it came right back so uh but you know it, that, that's the harder part is the taking it off part yeah interesting stuff interesting stuff well i appreciate you taking a little bit of time um talk with me today it's a lot of a lot of information in a short amount of time, and I, I know that the folks that listen to this will appreciate it. But if they, if anyone has questions or anyone has um, follow-ups, how, how can they contact you? What's the best way to reach out to you? Uh, you know, you can send me an email uh, um, or Twitter. Tweet direct message is fine. So, um, But I think the easy way to just find me is just uh, turf.unl.edu, University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Or you can go through our Greenkeeper app, and uh, you can contact me there, too. It's uh, yep. greenkeeperapp.com. You just go on there. My contact information is right on the homepage. Uh, and then we have a virtual field day uh, launch in here in August. And so if uh, if anybody's interested in you know seeing the results of some of those studies, like the lower mowing height thing themselves, just uh, you can sign up for that, and you can actually look at it. Um, it's, it's pretty uh, unique and interesting. So. We, we did mention a couple of times Greenkeeper app, but we didn't talk about much about what it actually is. Do you have a 30-second elevator? Yeah, yeah. So Greenkeeper app is just a, a place where we are consolidating a lot of university research into an easy-to-use decision support tool. So, um, you know, it's a free version. It's a premium version. It tracks your applications, tracks your soil testing, all that. Um, but it also uses all the growing degree day models, dollar spot models. Uh, this is your weather data to help guide your decision making. So, uh, you know, it's greenkeeperapp.com. It's a website. You just go to it on your computer, make a course for free, and, and start start using it. We have uh, 2,000 monthly active users uh, or more than this year. So uh, we are really excited how people are adapting it across the entire awesome. country. So you keep seeing good growth year after year with that app, it sounds like. Yeah, another 800 from last year. 800 wow. So well, How long have – when was the launch date for that? uh 2016 so we went from a yeah, nice. couple dozen to about 600 to 1200 uh 2000 for active users wow you keep hearing more and more about it so you, know, you guys are doing a good job with it so yep all right bill well, i appreciate it thanks for joining us and uh, a lot of the information contact information um how to get in touch with you we'll put in, in our show notes and uh, also a link to the greenkeeper app thank you for joining us on this episode of turf dudes you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music or tune in directly at www.turfdude.com. 
To send the Herald's Turf Dudes team your questions or comments or to be featured on an upcoming episode, reach out to us at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email, turfdudes at heralds.com.